Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you hit the grades of your dreams at school, college, and university through the science of fast learning and lasting memory, the psychology of study productivity, and the secrets to great exam technique. And now your host, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Exam Study Experts Podcast. I hope you and your families have been staying safe and well recently. The COVID pandemic has been one of the biggest things to impact humanity for a generation. This podcast reaches listeners in nearly 200 countries around the world, and I'd be prepared to bet that just about every one of us has been touched by this disease in some shape or other. It's tempting to think that we understand the science when it's all over the news every day, but when you scratch the surface, there's actually quite a lot the media doesn't properly explain. So ahead of a new season of study-focused episodes from September, I wanted to release this summer special to satisfy our intellectual curiosity and take some time out from studying and exams to dive into the science, the maths and the models behind the outbreak and to get some first-hand experience from the scientists working on the front line about what it's been like trying to do science at breakneck speed. Our first guest is an old friend of the Exam Study Expert podcast. It's Dylan Morris, the Princeton PhD from episode 19, which was all about Ivy League applications and careers in academia. Dylan, could you introduce yourself, please? I uh, study the ecology and evolution of viruses. In normal times, I think about how the flu evolves to escape our vaccines and how we can prevent that, design better vaccines, predict where it's going to go next and try to stay one step ahead of the flu virus. And so with my COVID work, it's been on those sorts of questions, thinking about essentially what we might call the ecology of the virus, how contacts between human beings and ways we might reduce those contacts, such as masking or social distancing, are going to affect the spread. We're also joined by Freddie Tapner. Freddie is something of a polymath, now taking London's musical theatre steam by storm. But the reason he's turning up on an episode about a viral pandemic is because of his background as a Cambridge engineer and a mathematician. Let's meet Freddie. Uh, My current job is I'm the chief executive and the artistic director of the London Musical Theatre Orchestra, uh, which is an arts charity which puts on grand big projects of musical theatre concerts with a full orchestra and star cast. Um, But that's not where I started. I actually started my sort of out of school life by studying engineering at Cambridge. Perhaps it's his instinct for how to hold an audience, but... The main reason I ask Freddie to join us is because he's got the most wonderful ability to explain complex mathematical ideas, and as you're going to hear, to make them easy to understand. In particular, he's going to be helping us to wrap our heads around concepts like exponential growth, the R value, as well as what engineers and technologists are doing to help in the fight against the virus. But let's go first to Dylan to give us some background to what's going on. Tell us a bit about what we know about how the COVID-19 pandemic got started. Well, one of the trickiest things is that we don't know for sure exactly how it started, even now. We know that at some point, some poor human being got infected with a virus native to bats. We don't know if they were infected directly by a bat or via some intermediate animal. 
that's called the zoonotic disease, uh, zoonotic as in zoology or zoological gardens, because it comes from other animals into human beings. And from there, initially, uh, it was difficult to contain within the city of Wuhan, where it started to spread from human being to human being. Uh, the Chinese government eventually came down with a fairly strict lockdown and got their own epidemic out under control, but not before cases had been exported to other countries. And unfortunately, from there, things were sort of off to the races. And now we have transmission in many, indeed, I'd say most of the countries of the world, all of which have responded with differing uh, degrees of success to try to control the virus, control the spread and save lives. To properly understand how a virus like COVID has spread, we need to understand the maths behind exponential growth and how it relates to something called the R-value. This might be a term you've heard a lot about on the news, but when you start to think about it, it's actually surprisingly difficult to intuitively understand and think about. So here's Freddie to explain things for us. I think the first thing to, for anyone to understand is what exponential growth is. Um, because exponential growth, people people use that colloquially all the time. Oh, yeah, it's growing exponentially. This is exponentially happening. But actually, very few people really understand exactly what exponential growth means. Um, so I have this demonstration I do, which is about folding a piece of paper. Now, before I talk about folding a piece of paper, there's a myth going round uh, that you can't fold a piece of paper more than seven times. Well, actually, you can. That's that's always been a myth. Uh, you'll just have to pretend that you can fold it as many times as you like. I think the actual physical limit on a piece of paper is about 12 times. But just, just for this period, just imagine you can fold it as many times as you like. So take your piece of paper and imagine that it has thickness one. Imagine that one piece of paper is thickness one. If you fold it once it becomes thickness two, right? Because it's got one piece on top of another piece. Uh, and so therefore it's twice as thick as, as it was originally. If you then fold that already folded piece of paper again, it actually becomes four times as thick. So again, twice as thick as it was before. Folded again, it becomes eight times as thick. Folded again, 16, then 32, then 64, etc., etc., etc. Now, Here's the question that I always like to ask, and I'll ask you actually, Will, as well. How many times do you think you have to fold that piece of paper in order for it to become the distance from the Earth to the Moon, as in for the thickness to become the equivalent distance from the Earth to the Moon? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's going to be less than you think, isn't it? 50? Well, so actually, you're very close. It's only 42 times. Um, but uh, but but most people's instinct is like, well, you'd have to fold it like a million times because it's a piece of paper. Yeah. You know, there's no way that it can reach the moon. But this is what exponential growth is. It is the idea that every time you do an action, something doubles or even something triples or quadruples. But it's something that every time you do an action it multiplies, it doesn't add. And that piece of paper estimate is uh, is quite terrifying. It just, it just shows you how quickly it, it adds up. Yeah. Now, uh, you asked about R. That's the, the, the sort of key number about when we're dealing with uh, viral diseases. And R is the reproduction number. 
Um, or, or to put more colloquially, it's how many people does one infectious person infect on average? Now, this is really key because this is effectively like the piece of paper. So if R is two, which is effectively what the piece of paper is like, so every time you fold it, it doubles, and the infection is spreading with R equals two, that means that if one person has is infected, they spread it to two more people. That means that the entire UK population is infected in just 100 days. And that's a, that's quite pessimistic as well. It's almost certainly going to be faster than that. Um, but that's assuming that every action, i.e. every new infection, happens after a period of four days, which is sort of about right, but some people think it could be less than that. So that's if R is two. If R is three, then the entire UK population is infected in just 50 days. And the ranges for R range anything between two at the very best case to about five and a half at the worst case. We know, or at least we think we know, in the absence of any control measures, that R would be 2.3. The The problem is, is that every time we gather in a large group, R increases dramatically. And that's what social distancing, for instance, is trying to prevent. And of course, you know, anyone of school age listening to this who studied exponential growth will know that uh, so many other aspects of our lives are governed by exponential growth and decay. The interest on your bank account is exponential growth. Fire spreads with exponential growth. Radioactivity is exponential decay. It is, it's a very prevalent uh, piece of maths, which is much misunderstood by, by the general public. Such fascinating stuff. Back to Dylan. I asked him to summarise how things were looking in summer 2020. The first spread globally uh, has now in many countries been controlled. In other countries, not so much. But we are starting to learn about the virus, start to understand why it was so hard to control in the beginning. One thing that emerged sort of starting in late February, early March, was a sense that people could transmit the virus before they exhibited symptoms. And that's been one of the things that has made it so difficult to control. Now there's a lot of work on trying to develop ways for us to respond. That includes proactive testing and tracing of contacts. It involves uh, antiviral therapies and severity-reducing therapies. Uh, You may have seen there was a big clinical trial of a drug in the UK that came out as a preprint recently. And that involves working toward a vaccine, all of which is intended, of course, to get this thing under control so that we can relax the kinds of more aggressive lockdowns and physical distancing that we've been doing and get back to something more resembling normal life. But the problem is that while we have made progress, the rate of progress does not necessarily accord with people's own uh, timelines. We're finding that People are pretty sick of lockdowns, of physical distancing. They want to be out enjoying the summer, and I am very, very sympathetic. And yet, while we've bought some time, we maybe haven't bought quite enough time yet. We have some drugs, but not enough. We're closer to a vaccine, but we're not there yet. We understand more about the virus, but we still have many things to learn. So we're in this sort of dangerous middle ground where it's important that we keep pressing forward. And yet it can feel as though the light at the end of the tunnel is just a glimmer. And I think that's very hard for people, both scientists and everyday people. 
if you ran the world, what would you have us? Uh, what would you have us do at the moment? Oh goodness, uh, this is why <laughs> we should all be glad I don't run the world. But <laughs> I would say that we now have some very clear success stories, both from higher income countries, but from lower income countries as well, as well as some more tragic stories that suggest what not to do. My own country of the US, uh, your country of the UK have unfortunately been more in the cautionary tale category, but there've been some real success stories. A lot of people have heard about South Korea and how their aggressive use of testing and tracing has helped them contain the virus and indeed start to reopen a lot of their economy. Uh, another big success story has been New Zealand, where they went for a full-on eradication, which has allowed them to more or less fully reopen, though they are having to keep tight controls on who can come in and, and leave the country and have to impose quarantines there. But one thing that, particularly in richer countries, you don't hear people talk about is the success stories in lower-income countries. Vietnam has recorded, well, actually, Will, do you happen to know how many COVID deaths there have been in Vietnam? I don't actually know. It's in fact zero. Wow. In Vietnam, they, the public health officials understood that their healthcare system couldn't cope if they had an out-of-control outbreak. So they very proactively bought as many tests as they could get their hands on. And as soon as there were cases in the country, instituted a very widespread testing regime to try to identify cases before they could spread, before they showed symptoms. And as we've now seen with the pre-symptomatic transmission, that was extremely prudent on their part. They proactively closed down areas where they thought transmission might be getting going. And indeed, like New Zealand, they understood that if they could knock it down, it would be easier to keep it knocked down than trying to mitigate when there's more of a raging fire. So we're now seeing that this thing is beatable and we're seeing what kinds of strategies work. And I think that what I would encourage people in countries where it's not so under control to demand of their leaders is to look to these success stories, both the ones that you're maybe seeing on the news, like South Korea, Japan, uh, New Zealand, but also ones you might not be seeing on the news, like Vietnam. Uganda has been another success story. Um, Thailand. And ask, okay, what did they did do right? And can we take some of those lessons going forward into the autumn when people are concerned that the colder weather in the Northern Hemisphere may make it easier for the virus to transmit again? What lessons can we take from these first wave success stories as we plan how to have a non-invasive fall where people are protected? We heard from Freddie earlier about what happens during exponential growth. Remember that piece of paper folded in half 42 times and doubling in thickness each time, such as that reaches all the way to the moon? Well, let's hear from Freddie again about what happens when the transmission rate slows down. I just talk a tiny bit about what happens when R is less than 1, because what that is, is rather than exponential growth, that's then actually exponential decay. So let's assume for sake of argument that R is 0.5. If 32 people currently have the disease, they only pass it on to 16, who only pass it on to 8, to 4, to 2, to 1. And that one person, every other one of those people, will pass it on to no one. And at that point, uh, the disease simply disappears. 
So who's been tracking the maths of the pandemic? Who's been figuring out what the R values are, how fast it's been spreading, how fast it's been slowing down, and what the impact of various interventions have been? Well, that's exactly what scientists like Dylan have been working on with their models. Uh, You may have seen a lot of discussion of virus modeling and trying to understand what policies will work, what policies won't work, mixing models and data to retrospectively evaluate what has worked, what hasn't worked. That's sort of my field. We do a lot of this kind of models and data. We hear a lot about models and modeling. Can we go like one level deeper? What, what does that involve? What, what are we actually doing when we're trying to build these, these models? I think that's a really important question and one where I do think the scientific community has had trouble communicating with the public. Because I think a lot of people, when they see a model, they imagine it's a kind of predictive model. So the idea is to forecast uh, how many cases are there going to be in two weeks, how uh, many deaths. But while that is one kind of model, and there have been some of those models made for COVID, I don't think those are the most important and indeed the most crucial for policymakers in a pandemic. Because with a lot of models, it's not so much to try to predict what will happen, but instead to do a more qualitative analysis of the sorts of scenarios that could play out so you can be prepared for a variety of things. Because there's always going to be a degree of uncertainty. If a model were a perfect crystal ball, we'd be all set. But because it isn't, what we use them for instead often is this kind of scenario analysis where we say, okay, if the virus is a little more transmissible than we think, how much worse will things be? If this intervention is a little more effective than we think it will be, how much could that save us? And we try to understand what signals we might get in the future that this isn't working and we need to bear down more. This is working well and we can ease back off. And to understand those scenarios and be prospectively prepared, a model can be a useful way of formalizing your assumptions. We always sort of say, really, ultimately, a model is just encoding a verbal argument like, I expect that physical distancing will reduce contact rates and thus reduce transmission. That verbal argument may sound persuasive, but to be really sure we're not tricking ourselves, you want to encode that verbal argument into a less forgiving language like mathematics. Mm. The beauty of maths is that you have to follow each assumption through to its logical conclusion. And once you've written down your parameters and how they all relate to each other, the equations tell you where to go next. So it's much harder to lie to yourself in mathematics than it is to lie to yourself in words. And so for me, one of the key roles of models in doing this kind of scenario analysis is to avoid over-optimism, over-pessimism, lying to ourselves, but being very strict with ourselves about, okay, what does what we know and what we don't know tell us about what might happen, what's less likely to happen, what's almost certain to happen, and how that will change if we change our strategy. So rather than providing this sort of crystal ball or trying to provide this crystal ball, it's much more sort of trying to do a principled way of exploring our options. But that's one kind of modeling, and then there are many others. Another important version is if you are retrospectively looking and asking, okay, did this physical distancing work? How well did it work? In places that have used masks, how well have the masks worked? You want to estimate those effects. Because this is real-world data, it's not a controlled lab experiment, there's all these 
unaccounted for factors that you need to sort of try to subtract off as best you can to get your estimate of the effectiveness of the distancing or the effectiveness of masks. And there a model can help you as well for that same reason, that it's that unforgiving language of math. So you say, okay, well, here's what we know was different between these two places in terms of their transmission rates. Here's what we know was different between these two places in terms of their population density. Here's what we know was different in terms of their masking rates. And now putting that all together with some mathematical equations, what does that tell us about how well the masks seem to have worked? So you can use them for that prospective principled analysis, but they're also good for forcing yourself to be principled in retrospective analysis. And that retrospective analysis is very important because, as I discussed earlier with you, we want to try to learn from the success stories and learn from the failures. But to do that in a principled way, we have to make sure we're not cooking in the conclusion when we go to analyze. And a model can be very helpful there. So let's think about how we're going to get out of all this. Let's start with Freddie to explain the big strategy that many countries are now following, particularly in the West. He's going to unpack the thinking behind an ingenious technological solution that might buy us some time to develop a vaccine without having to stay in full lockdown. The big idea at the moment is this test and trace app. And this is um, really, really smart. And it's something which I've been telling as many people as possible about because it is absolutely our way out of coronavirus. So I'll just talk a tiny bit about how test and trace works because again, it's not something that's, that's actually widely understood despite it being reported on in the newspapers and, uh, and on TV news a lot recently. The way that test and trace works is it works off your mobile phone. And if you are in close contact, that's about two to five meters, that sort of distance within five meters of someone else, someone else's mobile phone, for longer than 15 minutes, you will have deemed to have had a connection. Now, the smart thing about this is that if, um, let's say they call person A and person B, if person A then gets test positive for coronavirus, the hospital can then send out a message to anyone who they have deemed to have had a connection with, that's someone who's been within five metres for for more than 15 minutes, to say, you've come in close contact with someone who has COVID-19, you need to self-isolate for 14 days. Now, the reason why this is uh, so smart is, A, because it's completely secure, There is no GPS data going on. There is no personal data going on. The way that the phones exchange messages is they don't say, oh, it's Freddie meeting Will. They say it's XQRTZ6 meeting FTHJ89. But those numbers change every time they exchange a message. So those are completely unique messages which get sent between your phones And the idea is that every phone remembers all the messages they've sent out and all the messages that they've received so that then when the hospital then sends the message saying person A has got COVID-19, they know all the messages that person A has sent out and therefore anyone who's got a phone who has had enough of those messages, they they will say you've come into contact with this person. Test and trace doesn't actually stop person A infecting person B, because if you've been in contact with that person, 
you know, you're not going to know that that person has had it because they can't have had the test before they came into contact with you, if you see what I mean. Instead, what it does is it stops the uh, connection between person B and person C. So whereas before test and trace, person B would have just been wandering around having already been infected by person A, person B has been told you've likely been infected, stop wandering around, get back into your home and stop infecting people. And so it stops person C um, getting it. And if we can do that, we're on, we're on the road out. One other thing to mention is why are we trying to restrict this disease at all? If it's just going to tear through humanity anyway, why are we trying to restrict it? Well, there's a very good reason for that is because there is actually a way out. Um, and the way out is a vaccine. The problem is that we're not going to be able to develop and deploy a vaccine, uh, well, traditionally for 18 months. Now, what with this being a global pandemic, uh, the smart money says that the vaccine is going to be available hopefully much sooner. Some people are saying even as early as this autumn. I wouldn't hold your breath about that, but I think early 21 is probably about where we can, uh, at the very earliest, expect a working vaccine to be in place. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the number of people, uh, restrict the number of people who get this disease uh, until we've got a working vaccine. So strategies like lockdown or shelter in place, or even better, test and trace, as in the app Freddie was describing, can all help us to slow the spread of the virus until we have that crucial vaccine in place. Back to Dylan. I asked him for his thoughts on how science was getting on with the challenge of trying to find a vaccine in record-breaking time. I would say this is one place where I can be optimistic. I feel more optimistic than I did a few months ago because we've seen some things that we really wanted to see to trust that a vaccine really is going to be viable. We wanted to see that it would be protective in uh, model animals. And we've seen a number of studies with a number of the candidate vaccines that it's protective in macaque monkeys. And then another thing we really want to see is the absence of some kind of pathological response in the monkeys. We had had some issues with the first SARS, which is the closest known relative of this virus, with people's immune system overreacting uh, with the vaccine, well, with, with the animal's immune system overreacting. Uh, and we didn't see that with these new vaccines for SARS-2 in the monkeys. And that's extremely encouraging because one of the main limitations on our ability to create an effective vaccine would have been if our first candidates caused that kind of overreaction that we had seen with some of the candidates for SARS-1. Since we don't have that, that's a really good sign that we can push forward to trying these vaccines in human beings, which is now beginning. It's beginning in Brazil and South Africa and a few other countries uh, everyday people are going to start getting vaccinated and are going to be followed to see if they're protected, if there are any adverse health effects, how strong the protection is, if there are adverse effects, how rare they are. And that'll allow policymakers to make a choice among the candidate vaccines and say, yes, this one seems that it is both effective enough and safe enough that we can mass produce it and roll it out globally. And frustratingly, that does take time. And we're still a ways away from you or me having a chance to get vaccinated. Uh, and the manufacturing itself also takes time. That's going to be the most frustrating thing of all when we have this vaccine approved, but we're still waiting 
for people just to manufacture the doses because everyone's going to say, well, we, we know it works. Why can't I have some? And it's really hard to tell people, no, really, we have to wait because we all want to be done with this thing. But the good news is that while it's so hard to be patient, and believe me, as I'm as impatient as anyone else, progress is being made and we've cleared some of the most important hurdles. So while there's still a substantial road ahead, a lot of the roadblocks that we feared we might encounter are now behind us. And while, as I said, it's still going to be a matter of many months or more till you or I can get vaccinated, there is hope that that will happen, even if it's not going to happen as soon as we'd like. How has the atmosphere, certainly in your community, felt different I guess doing all of this at a much faster rate, doing science at a much faster rate <laughs> than it's it's normally done. So it's both uh, very exhilarating and utterly terrifying. It's exhilarating because you have this sense that you're helping and you have this sense that your work is really meaningful and people want to see it out there. And that's an incredibly motivating thing. On the other hand, it is a bit terrifying because when your work science is, as I said, a process of doing your best not to lie to yourself and to challenge your assumptions and check that every assumption really holds up and really holds up to mathematical scrutiny, really holds up to data when you meet your hypothesis with the real world data, really check that all your statistics have been done correctly. And all of that to be done well does take time and takes the ability to step back and take a deep breath. So you're being pushed to get this work out, but you know that it's important at the same time to step back and verify, particularly because we've already seen in this pandemic how damaging shoddy science can be if it gets out and gets a lot of public audience. We saw this with, for example, the highly publicized hydroxychloroquine study out of France that suggested that this commonly available drug could make a big difference. Uh, but that data was extremely shoddy and a lot of money and effort was spent on follow-up trials that, may, that mainly showed, well, this doesn't seem to help very much, if at all. And so there's this tension between really wanting to move as quickly as possible to save lives and help, and help get this key, these key insights out to the public, but equally wanting to move slowly enough so that those key insights can be trusted and can be verified. And that's a real tightrope to walk. And I'd say it's the hardest thing for all scientists working right now we want to move exactly as fast as we can, but no faster. And that's a tricky thing to know. No, for sure. Well, I'm sure we'd all wish you and your colleagues across the scientific community every success in your work. Dylan, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Where could we go to follow more about your work and what you do? Uh, well, you can look for me on my website that at dylanhmorris.com, uh, D-Y-L-A-N, letter H M O R R I S.com. And on my Twitter, my Twitter handle is also Dylan H Morris. Uh, so I tweet about COVID and other science and I blog about science on my webpage and it has links to my papers and so on. So from there you can see what I've been up to COVID wise. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we put a link to, to, to both of those in the, in the show notes to, to make it nice and easy for people. Um, Dylan, thank you once again. This has been great. Will, thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to chat. And let's take a final moment to thank Freddie Tapner too. 
As we look ahead to getting out of full lockdown, I'm sure we're all looking forward to getting back to going to the cinema, to concerts and to the theatre. So let's finish with a word from him on where you can find out more about the fabulous work he does with the London Musical Theatre Orchestra. Uh, sure, just head to uh, LMTO, that's for London Musical Theatre Orchestra, lmto.org, um, and you can read all about uh, the London Musical Theatre Orchestra and uh, what we're currently up to. And as with Dylan, you'll find all the relevant links in the show notes. And that's a wrap. I hope you found it interesting and illuminating to spend some time getting under the hood of the science of a pandemic. And with that, stay safe, stay well, and I will look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening.